Now we have in chapter 20 the penalty for breaking the commandments, and what we really have before us is what would be called today the penal code. Dr. Andrew Bonar, in his book on Leviticus, calls this chapter warnings against the sins of the former inhabitants. In other words, these are the things that the inhabitants before did. Now, it would seem from this chapter that the death penalty was exacted for breaking any one of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's true not all of them are listed here under the penal code for the death penalty. Only a few, for instance, are, and I think they're given to us, by the way, as examples. Murder, for instance, is not listed in this chapter, yet the death penalty was leveled against the murderer. We've already seen that, and we will see it again when we get to Numbers, the 35th chapter, and we'll call attention at that time. Now, the first thing to note in this chapter is that it is an abridged edition of the penal code. And therefore, it's for that reason that I infer that the penalty for breaking any of the Ten Commandments was death. Now, God, therefore, instituted capital punishment. And remember, he is just and righteous. He applied the death penalty with unsparing severity. Nowhere in the Word of God is punishment, by the way, for the purpose of reforming the criminal. That is something that never was in the books. That was not the objective. And actually, it was not to cut down the crime rate. God didn't give it for that reason. Yet I personally think it will cut down the crime rate. And I think one of the reasons for this spread like a dreadful plague throughout this land of lawlessness is due to the fact that we have weak-kneed judges today that won't enforce the law. And we hear a great many sob sisters cry about the death penalty. Now, God instituted capital punishment for good and sufficient reasons. And for a man to say today that he doesn't believe in the death penalty and he thought it was terrible back in the Bible, I have a question to ask him. You mean that you're better than God then? Because God doesn't make any apologies for it. My friend, justice and righteousness demand punishment. The majesty and the law and holiness of God have been outraged, and the crime must be punished. Listen to God when he put them in the land in Numbers 35. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. You remember that the writer even in the New Testament says that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, demanding it. Let me ask you a question if you do not believe in capital punishment, and you are a softy in this connection. Now, I do not know who I'm talking to. It may be today that you are a father. It may be today you're a mother. Suppose that you have several precious little children there, and there came in a criminal, and he was sadistic, took up your children by the heels, and dashed their head against a stone. 
What do you think ought to be done to them? I'm talking about yours now, not about somebody way over in another state. It's very easy to be theoretical and ideal today. It's very easy for a judge to sit on a bench and say, now, I don't think this poor criminal ought to be sent to the electric chair. I remember when they had this famous case out here in California, and all of this crowd was parading up there at the governor's mansion and parading at the penitentiary that he ought to be let off. Did you know that one of the girls that he had raped and had killed the fellow that she was with, did you know that she's in a mental institution, a raving maniac? The parents wrote me when they heard I was for capital punishment, and I came out for it very strong at that time. I have a book on it, by the way. I still believe in it. I think it's God's method today. I think it cut down a lot of crime. It was so easy for the judge to make a decision. But my friend, what about these parents? When they wrote me, they said, they felt like he should be executed. And they're lovely Christian people. Don't tell me they're not lovely. They're as lovely as you are. You see, when you're talking about somebody else's, it's a different story. When you're talking about your own, that changes the color of the picture altogether. Now, God says that they should be punished. And he went down in the list here. First of all, you have capital punishment for those who offer their children now, I'm reading at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying... Notice it's God speaking to Moses now, not Aaron, or not the people here. He's speaking to the lawgiver. And this is legality. Certainly it's legality. Paul says that those in positions of authority that rule over us, they do not carry that sword in vain. They to use it, my friend. The judge has no right to let a sadistic criminal, a psychotic criminal, loose on society and endanger your family and my family. This is the thing God has in mind. Somebody says, well, the old electric chair, it's a mean old chair. It certainly is. It certainly is. Always think of that ridiculous story about the fellow that apparently didn't have a very good lawyer and he was sentenced to the electric chair. And he appealed and appealed for this fellow. And finally, the criminal wrote to him. He says, now what do you advise? The lawyer hadn't helped him very much. He says, what do you advise? He says, I would advise at this time when they say sit down, don't sit down. May I say to you, friends, God says in that day of stoning. It's not pretty. No one has claimed it was pretty. It's an awful thing. It's horrible. But you see, the crimes that are committed are horrible. Now, the first one here, again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, whosoever he be of the children of Israel are of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones." That's capital punishment in that day. Now, the worship of Moloch was savage. It was satanic. It was cruel. It was brutal. Children were taken and put into the red-hot arms of an idol, and it was heated red-hot. That was, without doubt, one of the worst things 
that was imaginable. It was fiendish. It was demonical. And what a contrast that is to the outstretched arms of Jesus, who said, Suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And any parent that would put their children in the arms of Moloch, stoning just almost too good for them. And friends, all of this child molestation today in our land could be curtailed. The judges would take these parents that brutally treat the little ones that can't protect themselves. The judge should protect them, and God says that he will. This is a tremendous thing, by the way. And that's number one here. Verse 3, "...and I'll set my face against that man." Cut him off from among his people, because he hath given of his seed unto Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. He says, here, notice the language. I will set my face against that man. Is that the unpardonable sin of that day? I don't know. It's a terrible invective. I know that. I'll cut him off from among the people. And this was a sin against God And he says, you defile my sanctuary and profane my name when they do that. And you find that God had a great deal to say about that, for they did it in the days of Ezekiel. And he said that's one of the reasons he brought judgment upon him. You see, idolatry was high treason in a nation that was a theocracy. Then in verses 4 and 5, and if the people of the land do any ways hide their eyes from the man when he giveth of his seed unto Moloch, when he takes his children and offers them, and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family. Cut him off. Now, for a man to remain silent when a neighbor worshiped Moloch by offering his child was to make him a partner in crime and to be soft-hearted and soft-headed in executing the penalty made a man guilty. It's interesting that immorality, departure from God, and then reducing or getting rid of the death penalty for certain crimes all go hand in hand today. And we have a lot of people today that are lots better than God. In fact, the matter is they've taken his place. Now we have capital punishment for those who practice spiritism. I'm reading verse 6. And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go a whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul. I'll cut him off from among his people. And this is another practice of the Canaanites who were then in the land. It was a false religion. It was satanic. And somebody says, well, it was probably not a real thing. Well, I think, frankly, there was supernaturalism manifested in Satan worship. The fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus himself warned that there would appear finally an Antichrist who would be able to perform miracles, and if it was possible, he'd deceive the very elect. Here again, God said, I set my face against that soul. Now, in verse 27, "...a man also a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them." This verse, I think, 
should be dealt with here because of the fact that it has to do with satanic superstition. Demon possession is a reality, and it's existed in all ages. Many modern cults and isms are promoted by those in this modern age that are demon-possessed. Somebody was telling me about a certain person, why they said, Dr. McGee, this party has power. Sure, so does the devil. That proves nothing. We have a lot of false cults that are running abroad and very popular today. A departure from the Word of God and a departure from God always leads in this direction. The death penalty was exacted, you see, for participating or practicing these satanic rites of the occult. And why? Well, sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my statutes, and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. These verses belong here on demonism. Why? All that preceded them are abominations that required the extreme penalty of death. And these verses are in contrast, and they offer a good and sufficient reason for the death penalty. The people were to be holy because they belonged to God, and he was holy. Any deviation from this standard was a serious breach of conduct. And to practice these abominations that have been named was to turn from God to Satan. And today, people do not seem to realize how serious that can be. This is God's universe. God's a reality, friends. He's moving in the affairs of men today. You don't get by with it at all. Now we have capital punishment for those who curse father or mother. And we have here, for everyone that curseth his father his mother shall surely be put to death. He hath cursed his father his mother, his blood shall be upon him. You see, that fifth commandment was not to be considered here of minor importance. We saw in chapter 19, the Israelite was instructed to fear his father and mother. Now the death penalty was inflicted for cursing father and mother. And we're told in the last days there'll be those that will come along without natural affection and children turning against parents and parents against children. But I do think we ought to write over this law, which is extreme. There can be written the story of grace, and that's the story of the prodigal son. He can come home. Now you have capital punishment for those who commit adultery verses 10 through 16. I don't care to read all of this because it's adultery in every form that's imaginable. For instance, you have here in this ugly list adultery, incest with a mother or stepmother, a daughter-in-law or mother-in-law, homosexuality, bestiality, and for each of these there was the death penalty. For a man to take a wife and her mother, all three were to be stoned and then burnt with fire. You see, sins of sex is what caused the most powerful empires to topple. I would say sex and liquor were the two things that caused Babylon, Egypt. Alexander the Great, you know, was an alcoholic. Rome, France. France went down. Several of the generals said it wasn't the Nazis that overcame them last time. The thing that got the victory was liquor, the wine of France. 
And believe me, these two are going to bring this nation down one of these days. Now, this is the thing that pictures the present hour in which we live. They say sex and drugs today. Well, after all, alcohol is a drug. And like other drugs, can be used in the right way, but not the way Americans use it. Now you have certain offenses which require lesser penalty. And he mentions these. I would rather not go into detail concerning these because you can read them here. A lesser crime, a lesser penalty. Then you have here the conclusion to the law of holiness. Now you remember that we had an introduction, a prologue, to this section back in 18. Now we have a conclusion or a postscript to it. Listen, ye shall therefore keep all my statutes, all my judgments, and do them that the land, whether I bring you to dwell therein, spew you not out. Now God said, I put these people out for committing these awful sins. He said, I'll put you out. And he's no respecter of persons. I'll put you out if you do not keep these commandments and if you go and do these things. Well, did you know that their failure to obey brought on them the Babylonian captivity. I think it was finally settled in the reign of Manasseh that they must go into captivity. Listen to this. In Second Kings 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 15 five years in Jerusalem. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Now, what is God going to do? Well, God made it very clear. I'll drop down and read in this section. He says to them, "...in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers." Only if they will observe to do according to all that I commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearken not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And even the priests joined in that. And as the preachers of certain schools today are joining in on all of this awful lawlessness, and sexuality today. Now God says to them, "...ye shall not walk in the manner of the nations which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them." That's verse 23. And God had put them out for that reason. Now, he says, "...but I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land. I'll give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey." I'm the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Why, well, you know that timber covered that land. They have a great planting taking place over there today of trees. I set out five trees over there, one for each member of my family, one for the church, and then one for a Jewish friend. I put out five trees in one of the forests over there. I believe in that, but there was a time that land was covered with him. Now listen to the Lord. Verse 25, "...ye shall therefore put a difference between clean beasts, unclean..." And he goes all the way down the list, and he says, "...ye shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy." 
and I've severed you from other people that ye should be mine. And may I say they're out of that land today. You know why? Because they disobeyed God. Somebody says, but they're back there. By the way, how are they getting along? <laughs> they have had trouble every minute. They've been back in the land. You know what the problem is? When they went back to the land, they didn't return to God. May I say to you, friends, when they do return to God, which they will do someday, then there'll be blessing in that land. And God put down these commandments. And you know God hadn't changed his mind, friend. This nation can go down also. What a lesson that we have in this particular section of the Word of God. Now today, friends, we begin in the 21st chapter of the book of Leviticus, and it extends on into the 22nd chapter. And if you are reading with us, and I trust that you read along as we go through the Word, it'll make it much more meaningful for you then may I say you probably noticed that this was a rather bleak section. And in many ways it is, because there seems to be a certain amount of repetition here. We had in the last chapter that which was the penal code, but it had to do with the holiness of God's people. And it had to do with the people. Now we have here the law for the personal purity of the priests. And there is a certain amount of repetition. Now, there are certain things that we need to note. First of all, that Israel had a priesthood. It was God's original intention that the entire nation should be a kingdom of priests. We saw that in the 19th chapter of Exodus, verses 5 and 6. But their disobedience in the matter of the golden calf destroyed that possibility of the realization of a perfect and ideal society. I suppose that in the millennium that the perfect society will be attained, and then the entire nation of Israel will be the priests here on the earth for the earthly people, the Gentile nations. You see, there will be through the millennium and through eternity actually three groups of the human family. One's the church with Christ and the new Jerusalem. The other is the nation Israel here on this earth. The third are the saved Gentiles. And you have these three companies at that particular time. We find, therefore, today that the church, we are called a royal priesthood. We are a priesthood. Every believer is a priest. I sometimes make this statement, I am a priest. I'm a Catholic priest, by the way, but not Roman Catholic priest. Catholic means general. Every believer is a priest and has access to the throne of grace today. Therefore, we need to note that there is an application of the last chapter and this section to our own hearts and to our own lives. Now, the rules here, the regulations, are for the tribe of Levi. And we find that God lifted this tribe up to this high position, and it was a holy place, 
and there was a certain responsibility and obligation that rested upon them as priests. The greater responsibility demanded a higher way of life. And that today is true of the believer. We are required to measure up, not just to the common ethics of the day expressed in the Ten Commandments, but we're required to live a holy life which is possible only by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are told today, Peter in his first epistle, the fourth chapter, verse 8 says, "...and above all things have fervent love among yourselves, for love will cover the multitude of sins." Do you see that fervent love among believers? Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. And we are told today, again in First Peter, the second chapter, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And because of that, and even in the last chapter where we saw holiness among God's people, we're called as God's people today to a higher way of life. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over under lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard them and have been taught of them, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind." Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, you see that the child of God today, saved by grace, has been called to a high place to live. A believer today, I think, ought to be very careful about accepting an office in the church. He should be able to measure up to that responsibility. I have very little patience today with men who will except an office in a church and deacon, for instance. And that man, after he becomes an officer, he says, well, I'm not able to come to midweek service, and I'm not able to come on Sunday night. Well, my brother, you ought not to accept the office. Responsibility, you see, comes through privilege. It's a privilege to serve the Lord in an office. And you've been elevated, all right, live up to it, or... You are disgraced to the cause of Christ. And then what a picture that we have of our great high priest. And he measured up to his office. We have such a high priest, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 26, 28. 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh a son who is consecrated forevermore. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice, and this is the teaching of Hebrews. He offered himself. Now we find here the priests and high priests now come under the purview of the law. Let's look at it. Verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall none be defiled for the dead among the people. Death, you see, is the penalty of sin. And the idea is that they are not to be contaminated with sin of any kind. Now in verses 2 and 3, "...but for his kin that is near unto him, that is, for his mother, for his father, for his son, for his daughter, for his brother, sister, a virgin that is nigh unto him, which hath no husband, for her may he be defiled." In other words, the priest was permitted to defile himself for close relatives. You see, these listed here are all blood relations, and by nature they were close to the priest. In other words, he must be permitted to express his feelings of sympathy and grief as a priest. He must be a type of Jesus who could weep at the grave of Lazarus, and he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But he was not, however, permitted to defile himself for the dead of any others. He could mourn in his heart, but was denied physical contact. Now, if you'll notice verse 4, but he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. He's a chief man among the people. The office he occupied required of him a stricter separation than any common man among the people. Now, I hope I'm not misunderstood when I say this to you today. I have refrained from going to certain places. Now, I won't name them because I don't want to get involved with some people arguing about little picadillos. There are so many saints that are picky-picky today. So I won't mention it. But I do not go to certain places. And the reason that I don't go is not because I think they're wrong. I think, frankly, I could go and it wouldn't bother me a bit. I really do. You know why I don't go? Because I'm an ordained minister. And as an ordained minister... I honestly think I could go better than you could go. Don't misunderstand me. I really do. But I don't go because of the influence that you might have as a minister. And I think that maybe it might be well for you deacons, you elders, you Sunday school teachers, and you preachers to turn that over two or three times in your own mind. God's going to hold you and me more responsible than anyone else. Now, let me read on. We are told here, Verse 5, "...they shall not make a baldness upon the head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh." Now, this was something the heathen did. And they did it, by the way, as an act of mourning for the dead. And the priest was not to practice these superstitious pagan practices that were all around them. 
Now, verse 6, "...they shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God, for the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God they do offer, therefore they shall be holy." Their mourning was to befit those who were cupbearers of the king, the bread of their God. Their position demanded dignity and restraint as God's representatives. And I think it applies today to those who would serve. A bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-will, not soon angry, not given to wine, and no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. These are requirements that God puts down today. You see, that's Titus 1, 7, and 8. Then he says, "...they shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from a husband, for he is holy unto his God. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee, for I, the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy." Now, this has to do with his personal and private life. And in that, he's to reveal the holiness of God because of his position. He shall not marry a harlot, profane woman, divorced person. Now, the reason that's given is because that he's serving God, the bread of thy God. He's a cupbearer for God. He represents God. Now, let me say this. I get many letters from both men and women that say, I've been divorced, and one man, I want to go into the ministry. Another woman says, I want to go to the mission field. But I was divorced many years ago. Would it be all right for me to go today? Well, may I say this? You can't generalize, and I don't want to generalize, but I do want to make this statement. This is a generalization. I think that it's almost sinful today the way that certain people who've had an unfortunate experience in their lives, many of them before they were saved, and they're shut out from an office because of that past experience of which they are not guilty at all. This is the word that I say when I write to these people, and I try to be helpful. I say, yes, you go ahead and prepare for the minister, the mission field, but also be prepared to be hit right in the middle of your face by some saint who thinks he's speaking for God that will read the right act to you. Also, you will find out there are certain churches that will shut you out. But you go ahead, because there will be a place for you today, and there is. My feeling is that today we need to recognize that there are a great many people in this modern world that are innocent in these matters that have to do with divorce. Certainly, the wife of the minister. She doesn't have to play the organ or the piano or be president of the missionary society. A friend of mine, when he was called to church, he said, when he got there the first Sunday, he says, remember, I'm the pastor. My wife is not the assistant pastor. She's my wife, and that's all she's going to do, just be my wife. And that's all she's asked to do today. But she can. She must be the kind of person that would be accredited to the office that the man occupies. Now we read, "...in the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profane her father, she shall be burnt with fire." Why? Because of the position of the man. 
And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes, neither shall he go into any dead body. Notice these. He'll not rend his clothes. That is, be violent. And yet when the Lord Jesus, you remember, testified before the high priest, he ran his clothes. He broke the law in trying to try Jesus for breaking the law. Now, all of this is done why? Because he wears a crown on which it says holiness under the Lord. We need to have holiness today in the lives of those who serve God. Now, that is the whole thought and intent through this entire section here. Now you have disqualifications for priestly function that go all the way from 16th verse of this 21st chapter through the 24th verse. It has to do with those that have a blemish, or it could be a flat nose or something like that. Blindness, lameness, flat nose, superfluous growth, a broken bone. These are the things that would eliminate a man from serving. Why does it emphasize that? Because of perfection. Because of the fact that he is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in perfection. Now, you'll notice that these were never shut out of the priesthood in the sense that they were forbidden to serve, but they were not shut out from the table of the Lord. We're told in verse 22, "...he shall eat the bread of his God." both of the most holy and of the holy. And there are a great many in Christian service today that are crippled mentally or morally even. I had a young man, I taught him when I was studying for the ministry in a Sunday school class. He was in junior high at the time, and I followed him all the way through his life. He was a marvelous athlete, but he was tongue-tied. He had that cleft palate. He came to me one day and he said, Dr. McGee, I want the study for the ministry. Well, how do you talk to a young fellow like that? Well, I told him, I said, you are the finest physical specimen that I've ever seen. And the only handicap you have is your speech. And that's what you'd have to do as a preacher. I said, why don't you find something in Christian work that you could do without being a speaker. He asked me what, and I suggest at that time several things he could do. But one of the things that he could do would be a Christian education worker. Now, all the Christian education directors of the land will be after me now. But I said, you have such a marvelous physique. And he's an athlete, star athlete. And I said, believe me, they'll certainly follow you. And they'll overlook it, these kids that follow you. And that man had a marvelous uh, fact of the matter is what he really did when he got to college. He told me, he says, I saw immediately that I was not cut out even for a Christian education director. He became a football coach in a college, and his influence for Christ was probably greater than any two of us preachers because they admired the physical part, you see, and then to have this fellow come along and lisp and tell him about Jesus Christ is just about the most wonderful thing that there ever was. So I trust all the Christian education directors will forgive me now for what I've said. Now we find that the priest is defiled through disease and diet and the dead. And you find that 
All through this section, we have that given to us here in the 22nd chapter. The whole thought, and I'm not going now into the details of this chapter, is that those that are going to serve God are to be holy, friends, and they're to be holy in all their relationships. They're to be holy in their relationships in their home, in their social contacts, in the business contacts, with the world. Anywhere they touch the world, they're to be holy. And that is the thing that I feel today the child of God should be. Now, why should they do this? God says, verse 31, "...therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord." You see, they were to be a witness for God, not to go as witnesses to the ends of the earth, as you and I have been called to do today. But they were called to serve God as a nation, and as they did, the whole world would come to Jerusalem. And why were they to do this? What was the motivation to this obedience? Dr. Horatius Bonar lists five reasons. And the Lord says, first, I'm the Lord. That's the reason he's the Lord. Second, I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. Third, I am the Lord which hallow you. God wants you, my friend, to walk in a way that's becoming to him. And then he says, the fourth, I am the Lord which brought you out of Egypt. Now, God has saved you, friends. Now, don't misunderstand me. When God saves you by grace, he doesn't save you with the idea that he puts you in debt. Grace does not put anyone in debt. And I personally disagree with that song that puts words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He never said, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou done for me? What he's saying is, he saves you by grace. That doesn't put you in debt. But he did save you, didn't he? And don't you love him? And now you are to do this. Why? Because it's your duty? No, because you love him. <laughs> Because you love him and you want to please him. Why does their wife, she fixes a special birthday dinner for a husband. Why, she just works her fingers to the bone. Why does she do that? Because it's her duty? Well, you might say that, but you ask her why. She said, I love that old boy. I love him. And I'm doing it because I love him. I am the Lord which brought you out of Egypt. And then the fifth, your God. Is he your God? Then, my friend, you represent him. The world is reading you and me today. And, of course, that little jingle, what is the gospel according to you? What is the gospel? Men are not reading the Bible, but they are reading you and me today. And I wonder what in the world they're reading, by the way. May I say to you, this is a tremendous section, though we have gone over it rather hurriedly. The 23rd chapter of Leviticus, as we've indicated, is a remarkable chapter. And what we have here are the holy holidays. They're solemn festivals. They were times of joy, not fasting. Only one of them were they to even mourn. And God never wanted his people to come before him weeping. 
He wanted them to come before him rejoicing. Come before the Lord with rejoicing. And in it, though, you have here God's calendar for all time. Dr. Lang gives the meaning of these so-called feasts as a fixed appointed time. It's translated as set time. And I think holy seasons might be the most appropriate translation. Now, the very interesting thing is that most of these feasts are given elsewhere in Scripture in detail, but here they're given in an orderly and purposeful manner. Now, there are seven feasts, excluding the Sabbath day. That's given first, and it actually is not a feast day. The Sabbath day was not included, but it was the yardstick for measuring time. It was the yardstick that God used for all of these feasts and for measuring time for them. And it's prominent in this chapter here, just as it is in the book of Revelation. It is a dimension of time. The Sabbath day here, the seventh day. There are seven feasts. Pentecost is the feast of the seventh week, the seventh new moon with its following day of atonement. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast of the seventh month. In fact, several feasts in that month. In the 25th chapter, we're going to have occasion to consider the sabbatic year and the year of Jubilee, all adjusted to the number seven. There are seven days of unleavened bread, seven days that they were dwelling in tabernacles, in the Feast of Tabernacles. So you can see the importance here of the number seven in this section. It's a unit of a measurement of time. Now, these are days in which a holy convocation was called, and they came to Jerusalem. That was the place that was settled upon later. And it has actually a twofold purpose. It had a practical purpose and a prophetic purpose. Now, on the practical plane, these people came together in both a social and a commercial way. For instance, they brought all the twelve tribes together in worship after they were divided in the land and then later on scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They had come in on three of the feasts. All males were required to come on Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, as we shall see later. Now, you can see what this would do for the people. It had a tendency to unite the nation, knit the tribes together, they could socialize together, get others' viewpoint. You find that the omission of following these instructions was really one of the contributing factors to the dividing of the nation into the northern and southern kingdoms. And it certainly had something to do with them being scattered in slavery throughout the Roman Empire. Now, commercially, the coming together of the people from different sections led to barter and trade. This man says, you know, I need a good plow, or I need some instrument. Or some woman would say, I'd like to have some container for the kitchen. Well, this led to barter and trade, because a neighbor would say, I'll bring it down to you next year when we come down, or at the next feast day. And they could exchange ideas as well as merchandise. This was something that worked out, you see, in the nation. Now, most of these feasts were geared into the agricultural life of the land. 
especially, I think, the harvesting of the crops. And this was especially true of the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. You see, this brought the worship of Jehovah down to the grain field, the vineyard and the fig orchard. And praise to God was united with the work of the people. And I tell you, the sweat of their brow became a sacred sort of thing. Now, the primary purpose of these feast days was to give a prophetic picture of all time for the future. Each one of these feast days, as we shall see, has found its fulfillment or will find its fulfillment in some great event. We're going to see that. Most of them have been fulfilled. And we'll find that all the way through. That'll be true. Now, let me mention these. We have, first of all, the Sabbath in the first three verses. Then you have the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, great day of atonement, and tabernacle. All of these are the seven feasts. Now, let's look at the Sabbath day, which was the unit of measurement. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Now, God gives these instructions to Moses, who is to deliver them directly to the people. If you'll notice, as you go through this book, that God always directs his instructions to certain people, and it's well to note the ones to whom he's directing it. He tells Moses now, as the lawgiver, you speak to the children of Israel. These feasts had to do with the tabernacle. And somebody says, well, why didn't he say to the priests? Well, because these feasts were times when the nation came together, when the people came together, and it fitted into the yearly calendar of Israel. And it just simply stated that they were holy seasons, each having a particular and a peculiar emphasis. Although all are not given here, as is indicated, I think, that is all the details of each one of the feasts are not given here. And the reason is that the complete prophetic dealings of God with this world in time here is given. Each feast was typical of some great event in the program of God for the world. And I want you to notice that. Passover, that's the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ. Unleavened bread, that's the fellowship we have with Christ because of his death. First fruits is resurrection. Pentecost, the beginning of the church. Trumpets, that'll have to do with that which brings them back into that land someday. And then the great day of atonement. That's the day that speaks of the work of Christ upon the cross for us. And then the tabernacle speaks of the time when they're going to be back in that land. My friend, you have the whole picture given to us right here in this calendar. And it's a marvelous calendar, by the way. Now, let me go over this with you again very carefully. God says to them, "...the Lord spoke unto Moses." saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. 
Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, the weekly Sabbath cannot properly, of course, be labeled one of the feast days. It's pre-Mosaic to begin with. goes back to the original creation. It was repeated to Israel in Deuteronomy with an additional reason for its observance. It's representative of their deliverance from Egypt. God says in Deuteronomy 5:15, "...and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand by a stretched-out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day." You notice it's tied in with their deliverance from Egypt. Now, they had to work every day down there. Now they are to set aside one day to worship God because that tells them God has delivered them out of slavery. Now, I believe that the reason that we today should observe the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the early church, of course, observed it, but it's the day our Lord came back from the dead. And that's the day that full deliverance is given to us, that he's delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. And now that we've been saved, then we honor Christ by setting aside the first day of the week. But that's not the point right here at this time. But I wanted to say that because there are those that are insisting, of course, that we go back to the Sabbath that belongs to the old creation We belong to a new creation. If any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. We belong to that. Now, it was the yardstick of time for Israel. It spoke of cessation from all labor and activity. It speaks of a new week that's going to begin the first day of the week and a new creation. It was also prophetic. It looked forward to redemption. We are told in Hebrews 4, 9, "...there remaineth therefore a rest." That is, a keeping of the Sabbath to the people of God. You see, man lost the rest of the first creation. But now rest is his today through redemption, and only through redemption. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. There's a rest for the people of God. What is that? That your sins are forgiven. Come unto me, all ye that labor in the heavy laden, I'll rest you. The rest of redemption. And we find here rest and redemption are the twofold aspect of the Sabbath day. Now, we have the first one of the feast days. The Passover, verses 4 and 5. And by the way, that was given to us back yonder in Exodus. Here it is in the calendar of God. Number one, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. I think this verse makes it very clear that the feasts begin properly with a Passover and not the Sabbath. This is the beginning. And you remember, at the very beginning, God said to them, this is the beginning of days for you. 
And that marks the beginning of the civil year for Israel. Now, the details for the observance of the Passover is back there in Exodus 12. But this holy season represents the sacrificial death of Christ and the value of his blood. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, "...purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us." So the Passover speaks of the death of Christ. Now, it originated in the historical event of the last plague in Egypt by the slaying of the firstborn. Israel was instructed to slay a lamb, place the blood on the doorpost, go inside, roast the lamb, eat it with the blood on the doorpost. That door is shut. They do not come out. The death angel passes by. And Israel observed the Passover at Mount Sinai, we are told. And we'll see that when we get to Numbers 9. And the Passover was brought to its fulfillment the night of the rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he had observed the Passover with his disciples and instituted a new feast on the dying embers and ashes of the old, we see the Lamb slain. The Passover, I think, will be observed again in the kingdom. We are told in Luke twenty-two sixteen, our Lord said, For I say unto you, I'll not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom. And then we have the next, verses 6 and 8, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm reading. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread, in the first day ye shall have an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day, it's a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Now, this is a feast, by the way, that's separate from Passover. But you can see it's very closely identified with it. In other words, the Passover was observed one day. The very next day, the first day of the week, began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, its historical origin, I think, is in direct connection with the Passover. And unleavened bread was to be eaten for seven days, beginning on the day after Passover. And leaven here, by the way, is elsewhere. It's a symbol of evil. And unleavened bread speaks of fellowship with Christ based on his redemption and maintained by the walk of the believer. Do no servile work. That has to do with the daily occupation of the participants, and it's an offering made by fire. It refers to the burnt offerings and sin offerings. Now, the first day and the seventh day of the week of unleavened bread were the particular days of a holy convocation. It's well to note that in both Matthew and Mark, the Passover... And unleavened bread are considered as one. And likewise, the value of the blood of Christ continues for the believer after he's saved. For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. This is the meaning of the Feast of Matzah, unleavened bread. This speaks of the fact 
that following Passover, which speaks of the death of Christ for our sins, that now we are to maintain fellowship on the basis of the fact that he died for us and that we confess our sins as we go along. He says, if I wash you not, you have no part with me, said that to Simon Peter. Now we have the Feast of Firstfruits, verses 9 and 10. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priests. You see, it could not be observed, this one out in the wilderness. They couldn't grow grain out there. But when they got into the land, the first thing they were to do at the harvest was to watch for that first heading of grain here, stalk here, stalk there. They'd cut each one down, put it together, make a sheaf, take it, go into the tabernacle, and the priest then would offer it. He'd wave it. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow. After the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You see, the exact day he did this isn't given. It evidently was the first day of the week of unleavened bread or the first day after the feast. The important item to note is that it occurred on the first day of the week. And isn't it interesting that this one that speaks of the fact that Christ is the first fruits of them that sleep. And it was on the first day of the week he came back from the dead. We're told in Matthew 28, 1, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now, we're not left our own devices as to the typical meaning here. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And the church will be included in this. But up to this morning, or while I'm making this tape, why, he's the only one. He's just the first fruits back from the dead. So far, he's the only one back in a glorified body. But we're told that every man's going to be raised in his own order. Christ, the first fruit. Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. And so at the rapture of the church, why, the rest of the first fruits will be coming out of their graves, their bodies. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed this. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He died and he came out of the grave, and this feast of first fruits says there are lots more that are going to follow. You see, when that first fruits was offered, it meant there's going to be an abundant harvest. Now notice in verses 12 and 13, "...and ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord, and the meal offering." And that was to be a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the drink offering thereof shall be a wine, the fourth part of a hen. Now, it's to note the offerings which accompany the celebration of this day. But no sin offering is included. You see, that was included in the death of Christ. That's where he settled the sin question. And these offerings are a sweet savor. For, you see, he hath made him to be sin for us. That's Passover, the one who knew no sin, that we might now be made the righteousness of God in him. 
That's first fruits. Because he lives, we're going to live. He says, because I live, ye shall live also. This is a glorious truth that we have here, friends. Now, we are told, therefore, that he shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a stature forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You see, the new crop of grain could not be enjoyed until this offering was waived before Jehovah. You see, for the Christian, the death and resurrection of Christ brings to us new relationships and blessings. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. There is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And that doesn't mean, friends, just a few little habits that we've got. It means more than that. It means that we now are taken out of the old Adam. We're joined to the new one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have a new purpose, a new goal, a new joy, a new life. Everything is new now, and that would affect habits, would it not? Now, the next feast is Pentecost. Did you notice the orderly, chronological sequence that we have here? Passover first, then fellowship with him. Then you have the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. Now, Pentecost, that has to do with what took place next in the calendar of God. He says, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. I'm reading now verses 15 and 16 of the 23rd of Leviticus. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbath shall be complete, even on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days." and ye shall offer a new meal offering unto the Lord. Now, there are several things that we need to note about Pentecost, because there's so much being made of it today that is absolutely, of course, unscriptural. First of all, Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week. You see, they took seven Sabbaths. That would be seven weeks, seven days, 49 days. Then on the 50th day, the day after the seventh Sabbath, that's the 50th day, that's the first day of the week. Does that tell you anything? The church was born on the first day of the week. Wouldn't it be rather odd if the church was to come back and observe the old Sabbath that belonged to the old creation when the church is a new creation today and it's put forward and came to birth on the first day of the week. And on the first day of the week, our Lord came back from the dead so that when the church meets today on the first day of the week, it's celebrating the resurrection of Christ, that he's risen. That's what we say. And we're also remembering the birthday of the church. It was born on the first day of the week. Now, it was also called the Feast of Weeks. You see, it occurred 50 days after the offering of the wave sheep of first fruit. I think the typical meaning is not left to man's speculation anyway. Listen to what the Spirit of God tells us in Acts 2, and I read verses 1 
and then verse 4. Listen to this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, when it says the day of Pentecost was fully come, that doesn't mean it was about 12 o'clock at noon or it was 6 o'clock in the evening. Actually, when it says the day of Pentecost was fully come, it means the fulfillment of that for which it was given in Leviticus. It denotes the coming of the Holy Spirit to baptize believers into the body of Christ and to begin the calling out of the church. You notice that it's 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, the Feast of Firstfruits. The Holy Spirit came. You see, God was running according to his calendar and on time. The new meal offering is the church, you see. It says, "...and ye shall offer a new meal offering unto the Lord." That's something new. The church is something new. Christ didn't say, "...I came to give you an old garment and patch it up. I came to bring you a brand new robe of righteousness." And to be in Christ... That's where the church is, in Christ, clothed with his righteousness, and God sees us there. Now, there's something else I think that we need to note as we go along in this particular place here, that the day of Pentecost, 50 days. Our Lord showed himself alive for 40 days after his resurrection. Then, before he ascended into heaven, he said to his own Parian Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And you'll be baptized, he said, with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And ten days later, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came. Now, verse 17, "...ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven." They are the first fruits under the Lord. Did you notice anything startling in that verse that I read? It says, "...they shall be bacon with leaven." And somebody immediately is going to give the rejoinder, "...well now, preacher, I've been listening to you, and you said that leaven is always a principle of evil and that it's never put into an offering." And here is one. Yes, this is it. This is the exception to the rule, by the way. And have you noticed that it speaks of the church? You remember that new offering, that new meal offering? That speaks of the church. Now, I want you to notice something else. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. The church today, first fruits, he's the first fruits, we are part of it, for we're joined to Christ, be raised at the rapture of the church. Now, what does all this mean? It means just one thing there is evil in the church today. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, I did. I was pastor of a church for 30 years, not the same church. But I was pastor in about four different states across this country, all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And I'm here to testify I've been pastor of some wonderful churches. I 
look back, and it's been a real joy to me. I've had wonderful fellowship with the members even of the very first church I served, the one in Nashville, the one in Texas, and I know in Pasadena. And I think that these are the folk that have loved me the most. I've been very close to them, but I have known them, and I happen to be able to testify there's evil in the church. Yes, there is. Unfortunately, there's too much of it in many churches today, and I think the casual observer can recognize that. And that's the reason you have here this particular inclusion of leaven, because this is to speak of the visible church down here on the earth, and the church as I see it, know it, and as you know it. And apparently, the Lord already knew about us before we even got here. Now, in verses 18 through 20 here, he mentions that all the offerings are to be made on this day, the day of Pentecost. Ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish, and the meal offering, and the drink offering, and the peace offering, and the sin offering, all are to be offered. All the offerings are to be made at this time. You see, all that Christ is, and all that he has done, all of that have been made over to the church today. And believers can draw on him for everything. You can come to him for salvation, first of all. You can come to him for help. You can come to him for mercy. You can come to him for sympathy, for comfort. You can come to him in all the situations of life. All the offerings were made at this time. May I say that it's interesting how the Lord in these pictures is giving to you and me some of the greatest truths in picture form, actually, and not in cold philosophical terms or cold theological terms. Now, verse 21, "...and ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. Ye shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations." You see, they were to rest on the day and to cease from their own works. And that's what you and I are to do when we come to Christ. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3, 5. Now, in verse 22, he says, "...and when ye reap the harvest or your land..." Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of the field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, this holy day was adapted to the land, and in the midst of the celebration, they were to remember the poor and the stranger. Very frankly, that is the practical side of the work of the church today and of believers. We've been saved by grace. We should attempt to get out to folk the Word of God and attempt to be helpful to them. I do not believe the church has any right to engage in any social service, however, in which they do not present the gospel. Sometimes our missions are criticized 
because they make the man come in and listen to a gospel message and then feed them. And somebody says, oh, they ought not to do that. May I say to you, they ought to do that, in spite of the fact that a lot of these that are professional bums that go around and they make all the missions. They know them, of course, but they do reach people that way. After all, it's pretty hard to get a man interested who has an empty stomach unless you're going to feed him, by the way. James has something to say about that. Now, this looks forward also to the harvest at the end of the age after the first fruits are all gathered, you see, when God will remember the Gentiles. You see, James says, "...of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." In other words, James is saying that the early church, all Jewish, was a firstfruits, and that there's coming along a great company. Now, he says again, our Lord, in Matthew 13, he says, "...the field is the world, the good seed of the children of the kingdom." But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, or the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Now, this has to do at the judgment at the end of the age. Actually, we say that today we need reapers to help in the harvest. That actually is not the business of the church to reap. Our business today is to sow. We are to sow the seed. Spirit of God does the reaping. And we're told here that for the judgment, why the angels are sent forth. Angels are not even connected with the rapture in any way whatsoever. That actually is not to be thought of in connection with this. We read in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, you see. This is a judgment that is coming. Now we have the other, the Feast of Trumpets. And let me read verses 23 through 25. And the Lord God spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing a trumpets on a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, the date here is important. The seventh month, if you'll notice, three feasts took place in the seventh month. It's a sort of a sabbatic month, as there's a sabbatic day and also a sabbatic year. We're yet to see that in this book, by the way. And it marked the beginning of the civil year, as the Passover marked the beginning of the religious year. There were three holy seasons in this month. Now, the blowing of two silver trumpets were used in moving Israel through the wilderness. We'll see that when we get to Numbers 10. Now, that was the blowing of the trumpets seven times to get them on the march. There are seven trumpets in Revelation which cover the great tribulation period and which will see Israel restored to the land for the kingdom age, by the way. Let me read several passages here. Isaiah 27:13. It shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, the outcasts in the land of Egypt, 
and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. And then in Matthew 24:31, "...and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together the elect." Now, that's Israel and saved Gentiles at the end of the age from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The church has already left the earth, and without the sound of a trumpet, that sound of a trumpet that's mentioned in First Thessalonians, as we shall see later, is the Lord's voice, because John says he turned to hear the trumpet, and it was the voice like the sound of a trumpet, and it was the Lord's voice. Now, in Psalm 89, 15, we read, Blessed is the... People that know the joyful sound, they shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. They're waiting for that joyful sound. Now we have the next season. You see, trumpets are connected with the judgment that's coming. Now what follows after that? Why, the holy season of the great day of atonement. Verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying... Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, you notice again, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you. Ye shall afflict your souls. And by the way, this is the only day they were to afflict their souls. But this is the day that atonement was made for their sins. Now, we went over all of this in chapter 16. And the further word is to call our attention again to the emphatic statement, which is repeated three times here, ye shall afflict your souls. It was a solemn day rather than a feast day, and it's in contrast to all the others. In contrast to this, it is interesting to note that the trumpet of jubilee was sounded every 50 years on the day of atonement, and that it denoted joy and rejoicing. My deliverance! when the price was paid for your salvation and mine. This is the year of jubilee. What a glorious year that must have been. Now we come to the last feast that's mentioned, and that is the holy season of tabernacles. Verse 33, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month. Notice three feast days in the seventh month. You have a seventh day a seventh week, you have a seventh month, you have a seventh year, and then you have a seventh seventh year, which is the year of Jubilee. We'll see that later. And we're told here, the fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It's a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. Now, this feast was both a memorial and it was a prophetic holy season, you see. It followed the great day of atonement by only just a few days. And as a memorial, it spoke of their days of wandering in the wilderness when they dwelt in booths. And it points prophetically to the time when God has fully removed their sin. They'll dwell again safely in the promised land. And it's the millennium. And notice what he says in Zechariah 12:10. I'll pour upon the house of David 
upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And then again in Zechariah 13, 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open in the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And Micah says in chapter 4, verse 4, But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. They surely haven't come to that day so far. Now, 37 and 38, These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Now, this is a special emphasis on the feast days to reveal in what God delights for the benefits of his people. And it speaks to us in a very definite way. Now, we are told in 39 through 44, also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. Now, after the great day of atonement, when there was made a full expiation of their sins and the harvest and the fruit of the land was gathered in, that was observed this very joyful occasion. They were to dwell in booths, to remind them of the wilderness, but also to point them to the future. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, having seen them afar off, and they embraced them. They're looking forward to that day when they again will not dwell in booths in a wilderness, but they will be in a millennial age. That's a hope, friends, for this earth. Now, the holy season will be observed during the millennium. And we're told in Zechariah 14, I'm not going to read that, but you ought to read that chapter. It's a tremendous chapter. We're told that if they don't come up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll be in trouble, and you can get in trouble in the time of the millennium, by the way. We'll have to see that later. Now, this feast is not only prophetic of the millennium, but it also points to eternity and the everlasting kingdom. Listen to this, Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the fulfillment of the great Feast of Tabernacles. For seven days in the seventh month they were to rejoice. This speaks of the final and full rejoicing of God's earthly people. And his heavenly people will be with him in the new Jerusalem. Friends, there's a great future ahead for us. You know it. 